Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing this morning? Good to see you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we ask that through the power of your word, you would speak to us this morning and change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Did you know that there are only two women mentioned in the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11? You see, just as the AFL has a hall of fame and the NBA has a hall of fame where they record great players and, and great coaches and people who have, uh, you know, contributed greatly to their games, the Bible has a great hall of faith where it's recorded men and women who have done great exploits of faith. And did you know that there are only two women recorded in Hebrews 11? Now, one of them we can sort of understand. One of them is Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the great patriarch of the people of Israel. But the other one leaves us scratching our heads. The other one is Rahab, who Hebrews 11 says was a prostitute. That, that, seem, does, that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? That, that that person would be sort of celebrated and upheld as this example of faith. But maybe that's good news for you this morning. Maybe you've come into the service this morning with a family or friend to witness our baptisms this morning. And maybe you relate a lot more to Rahab than you do to Sarah. Maybe you think, man, if God was grading on a curve, I would fail every time. I, I don't have any shred of moral goodness in myself. Well, you know, Rahab's story is good news for you. Well, we are in the second week of our study of the book of Joshua. We're studying the book of Joshua, so if you have your Bibles, open them up this morning to Joshua chapter 2 this morning. We're doing this uh, study because we are going through a number of transitions as a church. I'm transitioning out of the role of senior pastor, and God is transitioning uh, Pastor Graham into that position. You know, I only have six Sundays left with you. God called me to be the pastor here in 2010, and now I only have six Sundays left. Uh, we have made the decision, Tegan and I, we're going to be moving to Brisbane in the new year. We're going to be selling our family home. You can be praying for us in that. Uh, Tegan has a new job, praise God, in Brisbane. Uh, the girls have a new school. We don't yet have a home to go to, so you can be praying for us that we'll find a place to live in Brisbane. You can also be praying for me that God will actually guide me and direct me as to what he wants to do with me and uh, in the future. You know, I am going on a bit of a sabbatical that uh, our church and the family of churches has provided for, a time of rest, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that through that time, God will actually... You know, he will actually outline for me what he has next for me. But, you know, uh, as I was thinking about my last six Sundays, you know, when a band comes to the end of its sort of time, it has a greatest hits album, right? And I was thinking about what are the greatest hits? What are, what are the messages that I've been trying to give you for the last 12 years? What, is, what has God laid on my heart that I've been trying to over the last 12 years in every single message? You know, I've preached over 400 messages to you. What is God, what, what, what should I be giving to you as I, as I preach these final sermons? And you know, as we come to the life of, of uh, Rahab this morning, I think that the life of Rahab really encompasses the message that I have been really trying to, to give you over the last 12 years. Because as we come to the life of Rahab, we see two things. We see the heart of the gospel, bless you, and we also see the hope of the gospel, so those are the two things that we are going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at the heart of the gospel from the life of Rahab, and we're going to be looking at the hope of the gospel. 
So first, let's look at the heart of the gospel. What is right at the heart of the gospel? What is right at the heart of the Christian message? If you boil it all down, what is Christianity all about? Well, what we see from the life of Rahab is that the heart of the gospel is this, is that God saves people in response to their faith, not their moral goodness. God saves people in response to their faith when they express faith in Him, not their moral goodness. You see, Rahab was not a morally good person. Look in your Bibles in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 1, we read this. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two, spy, two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Now there are these ominous tones that rest over this verse. You see, in the past, when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, when they came to Shittim, they actually rebelled against God and were judged. And also, we all remember what happened the last time Israel sent 10 spies in to view out the land. When they sent these spies in to view out the land, they heard back a bad report from 10 of those spies, and that caused them to rebel against God. So there are these ominous tones that rest over this verse. I mean, God had said to Joshua, be strong and very courageous, and he promised to give him the land. And yet he sends in spies to spy out the land. Now, the reason that they were going in against Jericho is because Jericho was right on the border of the promised land. It was this fortified city. It had large city walls, double walls. The, the walls were so thick that even people would live in those walls. We know Rahab and her family lived in those walls. And I think Joshua's plan was to take the city of Jericho because it was right in the middle of the promised land. And then he could head down south and he could wipe out all the southern cities and then he could head north and wipe out all the northern cities. So there is this ominous tone over here, over verse 1. And then the spies meet this woman called Rahab. We read this at the end of verse 1, that the spies came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now the Hebrew word for prostitute can also mean one who keeps an inn which has caused many to think maybe, maybe Rahab wasn't a prostitute, but she was just an innkeeper. You know, that would make good sense of the reason why the spies had gone to her house, because it would be natural if you're looking for lodging, you'd go lodge at the innkeeper's place. It would also make good sense of why, you know, in verse 2, when the king of Jericho learned that the men of Israel had come to Jericho to spy out the land, he went immediately to Rahab in verse and said, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house. You see, this would be the most natural request if Rahab was an innkeeper. But you know, as we come into the New Testament and we see how she is described by James in James 2 verses 25 and by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 verse 31, there is no getting away from her seedy past. The writers use a Greek word that definitely means a prostitute. So she was obviously someone who everyone knew would accept men into her home and she would prostitute herself for money. So Rahab had a very problematic past. She was not the sort of person that you would expect God to save and include in his people. She was not a religious person. She was not a morally good person. She was a prostitute. But God doesn't save people on the basis of their moral goodness, but only on the basis of 
And Rahab expressed saving faith in the Lord. When the king came to her and asked her to bring out the spies, she responded in verse 4 by saying this, True, the men, the spies, came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. You know, Rahab had actually taken the spies and she'd hidden them in the roof of her house among the flax. So Rahab lied. She lied to the king. Now, what are we to make of Rahab's response to the king? Well, on the one hand, she lied, but on the other hand, she risked her life to save these spies. Now, the scripture, it does, just because it records Rahab's lies, it's not like God is giving approval of them. But I think what we see in her risking her life to save this spy, these spies, I think what we see is this seed of faith that was growing in her heart. Look down in verse 9. She goes up to the spies at night and she says this, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know the promises of God. I know his promise to give the land to Israel. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord... Now remember, when capital L-O-R-D is in the Bible, that is not a title for God. That is like God's proper name. Like my name is Timon, so when you talk to me, you say Timon. You don't say Mr. or Sir, that's a title. You say Timon, that's my proper name. The proper name of Israel's God was the Lord. It was Yahweh. So we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sidon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. So Rahab had heard about the Lord. She had heard about his mighty acts of salvation on behalf of his people. You know, faith begins by hearing the message of salvation. For Rahab, she had heard how the Lord, what the Lord had done in delivering his people out of Egypt. And for people today, faith begins by hearing what the Lord Jesus has done, by dying on the cross for our sins and being raised three days later. And then Rahab says, look in verse 11, she says, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God of the heavens above and of the earth beneath. So Rahab heard, and then Rahab believed. As you can see, she confessed in verse 11 that the Lord, he is the God of the heavens above and the God of the earth beneath. She had come to believe in the one true God. And it was her faith that caused her to risk her life and hide the spies. You know, James comments on this in James chapter 2 and verse 25. He says that Rahab was justified by her works. Now, what that means is that her faith was demonstrated to be true saving faith by the fact that she saved those spies. And then we read this in verse 12, that Rahab says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with my father's house and you will give me a sure sign that you will save them alive, my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and you will deliver our lives from death. So Rahab asked for mercy. She asked for deliverance. 
She knew that the armies of the Lord were coming in judgment upon Jericho. And she asked the spies for mercy. And the spies granted mercy. They granted mercy to Rahab and her family. So that as we read in Joshua chapter 6, when the armies of the Lord came against Jericho, and they marched around the city of Jericho seven times and blew their trumpets seven times, when that final trumpet blew and the walls of the city fell down, Rahab and her whole family were spared. You see, God doesn't save people because they're morally good. Rahab was not a morally good person. She was a prostitute. She was a Canaanite. Now, she was saved because when she heard the message, she believed the message, and she called out for mercy. You see, this is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that you are not saved because of your moral performance, because you're trying to be good, because you read the Bible, because you try and reform your life, because you try and get it all together. You won't be saved because of that. But you'll only be saved if you call out for grace and mercy towards God. You know, there are only two types of people who are here this morning. People who know that they are bad and they have placed their faith in Jesus. Or people who are deceived. Jean LaCrosse once said, if the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. I love that quote. If the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. You are being deceived. You see, Christianity is not a religion. Religion is about goodness being rewarded, whereas Christianity is about our badness being forgiven. And often our sin lurks more in our goodness than it does in our badness. You know, when Jesus was on earth, the people who were attracted to Jesus were prostitutes and sinners just like Rahab. But the people who were suspicious of Jesus, who eventually patched a plot to kill Jesus, were the religious people, the good people, the people who claimed to have it all together. You see, the heart of the gospel is that God doesn't save us because of our moral goodness. No, he saves us when we respond in faith to his mercy. If you are going to be saved today, you won't be saved by trying to clean your act up, by trying to get it all together, but you will be saved when you hear the message, believe the message, and ask God for forgiveness. So that's the heart of the gospel. But secondly, we learn about the hope of the gospel from Rahab's story. The hope of the gospel. What is the hope of the gospel? You see, the hope of the gospel is this is God doesn't just leave those he saves just like they are. No, what God loves doing is he loves taking those whom he saved and he loves getting them out of the muck and the mire and cleansing them and transforming them and then using them powerfully for his glory. You see, when we think about Christian hope, we often just think about future judgment, but there is hope for us today. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, the hope of glory is Christ in us. That there is this hope that we don't have to repeat and make the same mistakes over and over again. You know, you might wonder what happened to Rahab after the walls of Jericho came down. What happened to her? Did she continue to live as a prostitute? Well, at the end of Joshua chapter 6 and verse 25, we simply read this. Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her 
Joshua saved. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So that doesn't give us very much, hey? It's pretty vanilla. She just lived in the land until this very day. That's pretty vanilla stuff. But do you know what? When you read the rest of the Bible, you find some very, very interesting things. For example, in Matthew chapter 1, in Matthew's gospel, where he is like introducing the biography of Jesus, he, he, he starts with this um, genealogy. And he says this, which is really fascinating. He says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So obviously, after the battle of Jericho, Rahab didn't stay a prostitute, but ended up joining the people of God, Israel. And then ended up getting married to Salmon, a prince of the tribe of Judah. So God completely transformed her life from unloved prostitute to cherished wife of Salmon. But not only that, we read this in the book of Ruth. Ruth is another book about an outsider. Ruth was a Moabitess, another outsider. And uh, it tells the story about how Boaz redeemed her. Right at the end, there is this other genealogy, and it's sort of like the exclamation point to the book of Ruth. And we read this, that Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David, King David, one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. So Rahab went from from Canaanite prostitute to being the great-great-grandmother of King David. And of course, in Matthew chapter 1, we are told that out of her line came the greatest king, the king of kings, Jesus our Lord. You know, God loves to take the despised people, the weak people, the people who others have ridden off like Rahab, and he loves to pick them up, to cleanse them, and transform them for his purpose. And so you see, God doesn't just want to leave you where you are. Once he saved you, he wants to transform you. And he wants to use you for his mighty purposes in the world. You know, Nicky Cruz was raised in Puerto Rico. His parents were heavily involved in Santorina. And as such, Nicky was the victim of repeated physical abuse and rejection at their hands. In an attempt to escape his violent upbringing, Nicky fled to New York City in the mid-50s where he soon got caught up in gang violence that was sweeping the city. Fearless and seemingly immune to physical pain, Cruz rose through the ranks of the notorious Mau Mau Gang in Brooklyn to become their warlord. Cruz's life was a downward spiral of violence and dysfunction. A court-ordered psychiatrist told the court that Nicky was doomed. He was finished. On a one-way trip to jail, the electric chair and then hell. But you know, God loves to take the unlikely. And the heart of the gospel is that it's not about your moral goodness, but it's about his grace. And then one day, a skinny preacher named David Wilkinson came to the war-torn streets of Brooklyn, delivering a message to Nikki. Jesus loves you, Nikki. Cruz threatened to kill the preacher, but several weeks later, God's spirit worked in his life and he surrendered his life to Jesus and he exchanged his weapons for a Bible. 
You know, God loves to then pick those people up, cleanse them, and use them for his purposes. And so for the last 50 years, Nikki Cruz has been around the world speaking to hundreds of thousands of people, telling them his miraculous story. His story has been told in the, life, in the best-selling book, The Cross and the Switchblade, and in the movie by the same title. Cruz ministers in the inner cities to prisons and sta stadiums, personally speaking to hundreds of thousands annually. Now, I'm not saying that will happen to you. I'm not saying that you will speak to hundreds and thousands of people and that God will give you that sort of platform. But what I am saying is that once he saves you, he doesn't want to leave you where you are. He wants to pick you up. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to transform you. He's got a purpose for you. He wants to use your life for his glory. You know, John Newton was nurtured by a Christian mother who taught him the Bible at a very early age. But after she died of tuberculosis, when Newton was seven, he was raised by his father, who was completely opposite to his mother. And age, at age 11, Newton went on his first of six sea voyages with his father, who was a Navy captain. Newton lost his first job in a merchant's office because of unsettled behavior and impatience of restraint, a pattern that would persist for years. He spent his later teen years at sea before press ganged aboard the HMS Hardwick in 1744. Um, Newton rebelled against the discipline of the Royal Navy and deserted. He was then caught, he was put in irons, and he was flogged. He eventually convinced his superiors to discharge him to a slaver ship. Exposing free-thinking principles, he remained arrogant and insubordinate, and he lived with moral abandon. He wrote later in his journal, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others to do also. He took up employment with a slave trader named Clo, who owned a plantation of lemon trees off the island of Africa. But he was treated cruelly by Clo and his African mistress. Soon, Newton's clothes turned to rags, and Newton was forced to beg for food to allay his hunger. Newton was then transferred to the service of another slave ship, the Greyhound, a Liverpool ship, in 1747. And he went homeward bound. But on that ship, in the galley of the ship, as the ship went through an enormous storm, Newton came face to face with his own mortality. And he bowed his knee and he surrendered his life to Jesus. After he arrived back in London, he took an office job in 1755 and he held Bible studies in his home. Influenced by both the Wesleys and George Whitfield, he became increasingly disgusted with the slave trade and his role in it. He would later, he would actually mentor you know, later people who would go on to end the slave trade. He was ordained into Anglican ministry in 1764, and he became a preacher in Buckinghamshire. In 1769, he began a Thursday evening prayer meeting, and for almost every week's service, he wrote a hymn to be sung to a familiar tune. And it was there that he wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace, probably the most famous song in the English language. So Newton went from slave trader to Jesus follower to pastor to hymn writer. You see, after God saves you, he doesn't want to just leave you where you are. He wants to pick you up out of the mess, 
out of the muck, out of the dirt. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to transform you. He puts his spirit within you. He wants to use you for his purpose. You know, you might have no idea this morning how the God of the universe wants to use you. I am certain that Rahab had no idea that she would become the great-grandmother of King David and from her line would come King Jesus, the Savior of the world. But God loves to do that. He loves to take the weak. He loves to take the despised. He loves to use the things that are not to actually shame the things that are. So what difference does this make? What difference does it make that God saves people by faith, not their moral goodness? What difference does it make that God then wants to transform them and use them for his mighty purposes? Well, number one, what that means this morning is that there is nothing in the way of anyone here this morning coming to Jesus. There is nothing standing in the way of anyone who's hearing my voice this morning in coming to Jesus. You don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to attain a certain level. You don't have to admit that you're a, you don't have to, you don't have to like read the Bible all the way through in order to be saved. All you need to do is admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died for you and ask for his forgiveness. Now you might say, what about baptism? You know, do you need to be baptized to be saved? We saw a number of people baptized today. And I would say, no, you don't need to be baptized to be saved. You are saved by faith. But it's, baptism is just a sign. You know, Rahab was given a sign. In verse 18, look in your Bibles, we read this, that the spies said to Rahab, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. So Rahab was to hang this scarlet cord in the window of her home, so that when the armies of the Lord came into Jericho, they would see the scarlet cord, and they would know that they had to protect those people who were in that home. You know, many Christian interpreters have seen this scarlet red cord or as a type of the blood of Christ. You know, each one of our sins was worthy of death, but on the cross, Jesus died in our place. His blood was shed to make atonement for our sin. But the scarlet cord, even though it was a sign of the covenant that Rahab had made with the spies to protect her and her family, it was not the scarlet cord that saved her, but it was the Lord who saved her. And her faith in the Lord, the scarlet cord was just a sign of her faith. Now, it was an important sign. It was a public sign. You know, baptism is a public thing. As we heard about James this morning, James doesn't mind declaring his faith publicly. And it's, it's a public thing to go down into the waters and to come out of the waters. It actually symbolizes that your old life is dead and you've come to new life in Christ. And and for Rahab, that, that cord would have been a public thing. It would have been a public thing as it hung in the window. People would have asked, what is that cord doing in your window? And you know, for those seven days as the armies of the Lord marched around the city of Jericho, people probably would have mocked Rahab 
They could have mocked Rahab and their fa family. What are you doing in that house? Why are you staying in that house with the red cord? You know, we are safe behind these walls. We are safe behind these walls. These walls will protect us. You know, people today feel like they are safe behind their own walls that they have constructed. People today feel like they're safe behind the walls of their own affluence, behind the walls of technology. We feel so safe in our little walled city. But let me tell you, there is coming a day when the last trumpet will sound. When the last trumpet will sound and those walls will come crashing down. And unless you have expressed your faith in Christ and put yourself under the blood of Christ, you will not be saved. But the good news this morning is that it's not about your moral goodness. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to go on a personal improvement program. You don't have to read through the whole Bible before you become a Christian. All you need to do is come today, believe the message of Jesus, turn to him, ask him for forgiveness and surrender your life to him. But secondly, here is an application for all of us as a church. Here's the second application. We must keep the heart of the gospel at the heart of our church. What difference does it make? We must keep the heart of the gospel at the heart of this church. What have I try been trying to share with you for the last 12 years is this one thing. Keep the heart of the gospel at the heart of the church. Keep the heart of the gospel at the heart of of the church. You know, very easily churches can move away from this message of grace, from the heart of the gospel. And when churches move away from the message of grace, then what happens is we lose the dynamic, the beautiful dynamic that is supposed to be at work in the church, where we can share our sins, we can share our failures, we can take off our masks. Now, obviously, we can't do that today. We can't take off our masks. But we can take off our masks and admit that we are sinners, that we struggle. You know, when you think about Rahab and you look at Rahab's life all throughout the Bible, who is Rahab mentioned to be? Who has she continued to mention to be in the Bible? She's continually referred to as Rahab the prostitute. Now, I think when we get to heaven and we ask Rahab about this, Rahab is not going to care. She's going to say, I was cleansed by the blood of Jesus. My sin was washed away. And you know, when you come to Christ, you don't... You don't care about your past life because it has been washed away. It has been put under the blood of Christ. And you know what also happens when you keep the heart of the gospel at the heart of the church? You get fired up, passionate people who love Jesus. Can you imagine how much love Rahab would have had for the Lord? I mean, here was a prostitute, a Canaanite woman. And yet the Lord had spared her life. She had, he had spared her life. She, she didn't deserve it. And he had spared her life. And I think that from that day on, Rahab would have loved God. You know what fires people up to love God? It's not preaching what you ought to do, that you ought to do this and you ought to do that and you ought to do this. Now, certainly in the Bible, there are many commands. But what fires up people to be passionate and wholehearted and to say, God, just use me wherever you want to use me, what fires them up is when we remind people of the beautiful grace of Jesus. When we remind them that they were saved not because of their moral performance, but they were saved by his grace. 
Amen? Amen. And so keep the heart of the gospel at the heart of the church. You know, I'm facing an uncertain future that as I step out in faith, but I am trusting that God is going to lead me and God is going to guide me and I'm just putting my life in his hands and saying, Lord, you use me however you want. Because you died for me, I want to live every one of my days, every one of my days for Jesus Christ. I want to proclaim his gospel and see him glorified. And I pray that this church will have that same heart well after I'm gone. That every single person, because Jesus died for them, will say, Jesus, I hand my life to you. Clean me up. Use me for your amazing purposes. Transform my life and use me for your glory and your honor's sake. I pray that that will be the case. Well, let's pray together, church. Let's stand together. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, Jesus is here to save you. And there is nothing standing in your way of you coming to know him. Nothing standing in your way of coming to know him. All you need to do is humble yourself. Admit that you are a sinner. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again. Surrender your life to him and turn to him and trust in him. I want to pray a prayer right now. And if you, want to, if you feel the Holy Spirit moving in your heart right now, Just pray this prayer along with me and receive Christ into your life this morning. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I admit that I am a sinner. I'm just like Rahab. I cannot save myself. But I thank you that you, Father, sent Jesus to die for me, to save me. And right now I hand over my life to you. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. I ask you to cleanse me of all my sin. I ask you to put me right with you, God, through Jesus. I hand over my life to you. I don't know what that means right now fully, but I hand it over to you. And I ask you to change me and transform me. If you've prayed that prayer this morning, then the Holy Spirit has come into your life. You've been born again, born anew by the Holy Spirit. And God has transformed you by His grace. Not because you're a good person. There's no good people in this room. There's only saved people. There's only people who were once dead and they are now alive. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Do your work in us. And Lord, I pray for this church, that the members of this church would always be a would always keep the heart of the gospel at the heart of the church, that it wouldn't stray into something else that causes the church to get off mission, that causes our hearts to grow cold towards you and your love. But I pray that we would always be inflamed with a passion for you because of your passionate love for us, that we love you because you first loved us. Thank you, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name.